Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the biosimilar podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 30th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And a very quick nag that it does only take you a moment to go to iTunes and rate the show. So please help us out here. Your reviews and comments really help the show as we build our audience. This week on Twill, we greet Dr. J.B. Silvers, who is the John R. Mannix Medical Mutual of Ohio, Professor of Healthcare Finance and Professor of Banking and Finance at Weatherhood School of Management at Case Western University, uh, where he also has a joint appointment in Case's School of Medicine. He researches in the area of financial management and health service and has an enviable publishing record. He also has a distinguished history of public service from the TJC to what is now MedPAC. Big welcome to the pod, JB. Great. Good to be here. So, uh, it's been a kind of ugly time in the media for the Affordable Care Act over the last few <laughs> weeks. Um, we've had more than our share of doom and gloom about the ACA. There's a, a recent Atlanta uh, headline I noted, quote, the less affordable care act. Uh, question mark. And then the New York Times upshot column this week uh, noted, quote, the insurance co-ops created by the law have mostly gone belly up. United Health bowed out of most states where it offered individual plans on the exchanges. Aetna's pulled out from 11 states and the narrative continued. So let's start, you know, at 5,000 feet, maybe, JB, with how do you read the current state of play? Uh, do you think we're conflating discrete exchange problems with the health of the the system and the ACA generally? Well, it's, that's a good question. It's, it's, um, it's, it's definitely in trouble. Is it on its way to demise? I don't think so. The, the plan was for a three-year startup that would allow the companies to get experience with this, which is very much what we did with the drug plan, the Part D plan. And it worked beautifully there, uh, particularly with risk adjustment, the three R's, uh, sup- supposedly, that would allow the companies to gain experience and they know how to price their products appropriately. That didn't work. <laughs> very well, thanks to Congress pulling the rug out from underneath it. And uh, I think some reluctance on the part of the companies to jump in and and do the right thing. United was late to the game, clearly mispriced their products, and then decided to take their ball and go home. Uh, Aetna is more of a problem, since they were serious and in there, and who knows what else going on with their antitrust issues and such. But what we think we found is that people on the exchanges are having trouble shopping, and they've shopped largely for price. And the legacy plans that have broad networks are not very competitive on price. So they haven't gotten the enrollment that they thought. And the people that they have enrolled are sicker than what they thought. Um, According to the actuarial value calculator that is behind this, about 5% of the claims are estimated to be over $12,000 a year. Um, they clearly went beyond that. Uh, on the co-ops, they were never really insurance companies in the full sense. They didn't have enough capitalization. They never thought they would make it. It was a sop to the people that wanted to have a public option and not a very good one. Um, is it going to last in the long run? That's a good question. I think we're at a critical point. So I wanted to follow up on this question of people shopping simply on the basis of price. And it reminds me of a lot of initiatives in healthcare where, you know, there was all this energy behind, say, ranking and rating of hospitals and doctors. And then it turns out that patients and consumers aren't really uh, using these rankings and ratings. With respect to the um, question of shopping for price, I'm wondering 
wondering why that's surprising because, or <laughs> on the other side, the other flip side of it would be, weren't people able to sort of anticipate that the people that are really going to care about the size of the network are probably going to be the people that are already have had some health issues and anticipate having serious health issues in the future. So it seems strange to me, but I mean, maybe I'm just naive about the nature of the health consumer marketplace. I mean, do you think, JB, that this was something that insurers sort of knew about and were counting on as part of the implementation of the exchanges? Or is this genuinely new knowledge that we've acquired thanks to these years of, of Obamacare so far? Well, that's a good question. I think the design was by uh, economists. With my economist hat on, I have to have a little humility on that. Uh, if there had been, been more marketing people involved, maybe they'd been better. But the worst of all were the actuaries. <laughs> I uh, During one of my little sojourns, mm. I was CEO of an, a health insurance company. And I was going to write an article when I got out of things I used to know and now I don't. Uh, and I didn't get very far with that. I thought it was a great title, and I didn't have much to put in there. But one I used to think I would put in would be, I used to think actuaries knew what they were doing, and now I don't. Uh, we the, the actuarial calculator behind this, and really there's not much flexibility. You have to come up with one price, basically, for the stereotypical person that's going to enroll. And that gets distributed in a fairly mechanical way over all the other categories. Um, for each metal level, that that uh, that 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 was done in a fairly naive way without really assuming very much about the distribution. So companies had to make big guesses as to what their enrollments were going to look like and do the best they could do, and they they just didn't have the analytic capability to do that. So did they mar- did they know how to market and did they know how to do it? No. Uh, in the past, they took care of that by product design. So you tried to include things that would attract certain groups and exclude other things do pre-existing conditions, all the stuff that you can't do under the ACA. So most of their tools were taken away from them and they're left out there naked, uh, not knowing what's going to happen. And they found out. So uh, it's going to take more than three years. It's a complicated thing. And we're probably going to learn from the the most successful ones have been the uh, Medicaid-oriented plans that had narrow networks and low prices to begin with because they can attract people. Uh, And it turns out people don't mind going to narrow networks anywhere as Near, near as they thought they were. And you're probably right. The people that wanted net and broad networks were people that had complicated conditions. So I think it, it's to, to us, it may seem intuitively reasonable. To the people designing this, it wasn't. Do you think there was over, um, over-reliance by the insurers on health underwriting? And so when that gets taken away from them, um, uh, they didn't have uh, sophisticated tools to make up? Or, or do you think it's more about pool size, uh, that these smaller pools are far harder to predict, to manage? Oh, it's, it's both, obviously. the uh, Most of the counties that are, are losing plans now are ones with very low enrollment. And most of the places that are being, where they're pulling out, of they didn't have much enrollment to begin with. The rural counties, small enrollment to begin with, small number of people, and then very few people joining those plans that are pulling out. So that's not not too surprising. Um, however, you're right in the first point. Uh, John Mannix, who was one of the originators of the Blue Cross system and my mentor when I first came to Case Western Reserve <clears throat> in his 80s, uh, he used to joke that there were two things that insurance companies hated to do. One was to take risks. The 
other was to pay claims. Um, needless to say, he was joking. But <laughs> but his point was, if you can avoid taking risks, you're better off. So you you avoided taking risks. You did experience underwriting. Uh, you charged higher prices. You excluded uh, people with uh, with pre-existing. You did all things that the ACA was designed to, to get rid of. And when you had to put that in, it's a different world. So insurance companies are being asked to bear risks that they never had to bear before, and they're really having trouble figuring out how to do that. They still don't do that too too much on the rest of the insurance system. They have pretty good pools of employed people, and they can still do still do some rating there. They can set their rates for large groups. It's the it's the individual market that's sort of pure insurance that they never had to do before, and that's a tough one. Earlier, you mentioned the three R's and the attempts to sort of preempt some of these problems that have occurred. It would be great for our listeners if you could bring your experience to bear on explaining sort of the the attempts behind risk corridors, reinsurance, risk adjustment. Right. Well, again, all three of those were not new. Um, The risk adjustment we've done in almost every insurance plan we've had. And that that, the idea there is compensate you for, for bad selection. So if you select a bunch of people, a bunch of people select into your plan that are abnormally, uh, have abnormal conditions, you transfer some of the premium from the people that enrolled a less sick population into yours. Um, the new regs that just came out yesterday, we're just glancing through them, are basically trying to take that and expand it and make it more accurate. Um, we've done that with Medicare Advantage plans. We did it with the drug plan. It's not at all an unusual mechanism. It didn't do enough. So the, that risk adjustment across the population was was important, but not enough to take care of it. The second is reinsurance. And that is sort of, the first is bad selection. The second is bad bad luck. If you happen to have a bunch of really high-risk claims that come into yours, there's a stop-loss insurance mechanism. So there, you, you, extraordinarily high claims can get paid for above a certain level uh, through this pool. The third one is uh, bad judgment or bad pricing. Uh, so if you guessed wrong on your premium, the idea was the most you could gain was 3% uh, profit margin. The most you would lose is a 3% loss. And those were supposed to be self-financing. So you have enough people that win and enough people that lose. It sort of evens out. The same with the pool for high-risk policies. But when they got around to actually trying to do it, Congress said, the Republicans said, no, 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 no. That's You can't take that from other sources of funding. That's got to be an appropriation. And that's our job. And we're not going to appropriate anything. So for those those pools <clears throat> that we really needed to have to stabilize the premiums and that the companies, by the way, thought they were going to get when they put their prices together, uh, they didn't. They weren't there. They got they paid 12 percent on the dollar of what they were supposed to be uh, paid. Well, needless to say, that has something to do with the premiums for the next year, because <laughs> now everyone assumes it's not going to be there, and so you build that extra risk margin in. Um, and, and then I think that explains part of what's happened with the premiums this year versus previous years. So that is a great rundown of you know the, what's happening here with these risk adjustment, risk corridors types of programs. And I wanted to ask about a uh, recent prediction by uh, Uwe Reinhardt uh, in Vox. There's an article by Sarah Cliff where she in- interviewed uh, Reinhardt, where he actually believes that the exchanges are doomed. Uh, he uses the historical precedent of how New Jersey had community rating but no mandate, so the market shrank quickly and there was a death spiral there. Do you think these concerns are valid, or do you think that he's sort of overstating the uh, the, the problem here? Well, I'd hate to argue with Uwe. He's obviously uh, got 
some good insights on these things. I don't think they're, I, I would not say doomed, but uh, wounded, let's say. Um, and, and it'll be interesting. I think this is a critical year coming up. Can we get these risk adjustments right? And will there be enough, enough participation? Uh, <clears throat> the biases aren't huge. They're just significant. You know, it's not like it's not like New Jersey or New York did something like this many years ago. Other people have tried it. But you really have to have everybody in. So I think the election is going to be really important. If uh, Congress can get off the dime and actually fix some things, then I think there's still a, a chance we can we can pull this out. Uh, on the other hand, insurance is a really risky business, and the worst of all is the individual market. So the, we're tackling the toughest of the of the insurance models here in this this plan. And if everybody's not at the table, it's really hard to make it work. Just to follow up on that, it also seemed like what Reinhardt seemed to suggest in some of his recent interviews is that there are countries like Switzerland and Germany where essentially you have uh, private commercial plans, but A, it works because there's incredibly harsh mandates that make sure everyone really is involved, and B, that essentially these private insurers don't make a profit, there's a common benefit package. I don't know about the narrow network side in the European model, um, but do you think these European plans, that there is something there that could be an inspiration in the U.S., or do you think these are just so culturally distinctive that there's really no hope of, of transplanting that model. No, I don't think it's culturally distinctive at all. We're, we're an awful lot of people here from the same cultural stock, so <laughs> I don't think that's really a problem. Uh, and Uwe's always felt this way. He's felt for years that the private insurance market was sort of silly. Uh, and he, he likes to be contrarian, which is great. You know, he likes to argue that uh, uh, one big insurance company actually is good because they can negotiate really good rates, like Blue Cross of Alabama or something like that. So, yes, are there other models that work? Absolutely. Politically, I think this is an expedient because we're never going to get a single operation through Congress at the time. And this is the next best. It's the Republican plan for out loud. So that's what we basically have is the original Republican plan here. I think the, uh, and, and I, th I think we could have failure here of these changes. Again, I'm a, I think it's too early to say that's the problem. But we still have a pretty robust insurance market at the group level with, uh, with companies, and they're not going to get rid of those plants. They, they just haven't. They're, they're definitely not going to end them because they've they work pretty well and they they pretty much like them and insurance you know, we still have unions behind them and all that i think the threat the long term threat to insurance is something i haven't found people talking about but it seems to me from a broader finance point of view is really the critical issue and that is that insurance by its definition is something you have when you can't predict what's going to happen at the individual level but you can predict it at the group level so casualty insurance let's say the hurricanes or fires or something like that we can't predict that but once but we we, we can look at it from a uh, an actuarial point of view uh, as long as it's a random event when it, when we know what the expenditure is going to be for something then we we don't insure against it, we finance it. So we know that we're going to have to make the mortgage payment. So we save money and make the mortgage payment. You know, it's not an insurance question. It's a financing question. The fundamental problem, I think, with uh, in the long run with health insurance is more and more of what we spend in health insurance is now knowable at the individual level as opposed to the group level. And therefore, it becomes not insurable, but becomes a financing need. Um, and that's for two major reasons. One is the growing importance of chronic care, uh, chronic conditions. 
So if you have rheumatoid arthritis this year, you have it next year. If you have diabetes this year, you have it next year. You pretty much can predict what you're going to spend. The second, which is a little more ambiguous, but still on the horizon, is genetic information. You know, the more that we know about the genome, the more that we can predict what's going to happen. And so we may well have the demise of private health insurance for those two reasons, because trying to get the insurance system to bear significant financing costs basically starts driving it down. And that's what the reason the mandates are there is to make sure all those people are in there so we can spread it across the population. But basically, that's a way that, that we're hiding our financing need within the insurance model. So I see that as a bigger long-term threat. The short-term threat is, can we get these crazy exchanges to do what they're supposed to do? That is such a smart observation that health insurance really doesn't have many characteristics of, of traditional insurance. And the further we go down these roots, uh, it's going to be less and less like insurance and, and, and therefore less likely to recover. I mean, if you compare the German insurers, for example, the, the, the classic difference there between what we would look at in this country is that those 200-odd insurance providers, they don't compete on price with the providers. There's a set price that is negotiated for all of the insurers. So the insurers actually only compete on sort of the efficiency of their operations rather than the services that they are buying and, 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 and moving on. I guess the, the question uh, that comes up with that regard, if we're right in that kind of trend line, does this explain why the public option is back under discussion, uh, why, we, why we seem to, to be hearing more about that? Or is this just sort of a little political fireworks that are being set off in an election year? I, I think that's a Hail Mary. <laughs> yeah, we've got troubles here. Let's, let's see if we can't get it back on the table and Medicare for all is one way to do it. And one at, at the political level, I think that's what's going at, at a more practical level. However, it's interesting because having that broad network plan that is Medicare on the table and available for other people makes people more honest and does create another option and probably is a reasonable backup to uh, to those areas where there's not enough enrollment and where you can't really make a competitive market work. Um, the plan that I ran was expanded from the Cleveland area to the surrounding counties, and uh, it was just impossible. We could not make it work under Medicare Medicare payment. This has been 10, more than 10 years ago now. We couldn't make it work uh, at that level because the, the payment just wasn't good enough and it wasn't we couldn't have a competitive market the republicans came in and basically paid more money to the insurance plans for those rural areas which didn't make any sense at all because we're supposed to be saving money um, so what we have and and therefore they pulled out so we're losing all those medicare advantage plans out in the rural areas because they're they're just not economically appropriate in that area with not enough enrollment and and not enough competition um, so i think we got the same trouble here you know expecting uh, the insurance market to work, uh, the exchanges to work in every place in the country is just a little naive. Uh, it's not going to happen. Expecting it to work in, in the large cities and in larger communities is reasonable. It's worth a try. The trade-off, however, is how much do we get out of competition to offset the, the overhead cost of running a private insurance plan versus what do we get out of monopoly, monopoly power, monopsony power, really, of the insurance companies uh, with much lower insurance, uh, much lower overhead. Uh, we're giving up a lot of extra administrative cost for the benefits of competition 
and innovation. And I think right now it's pretty hard to argue that Medicare isn't just about as innovative as anybody else out there. So a lot of the arguments that we thought we were going to get with a competitive market are a little weaker now than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. I really appreciate that perspective. I think that is a terrific way of you know elegantly laying out the different visions here. And I do recall hearing some folks say that, you know, this the problems that are happening in Obamacare right now are in many ways a very deep problem for the ideology of the staunchest Obamacare opponents because they're highlighting the difficulty of getting competition in a lot of the rural areas. There was a fantastic Wall Street Journal article recently, you know, everyone's talking about Pinal County, Arizona, where there are no plans, but I think they said there was a sizable number of counties where there's only one plan. Well, there's not many people there either. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I focused on counties, not people. Yes, that's true. Yes. So it's true. There's that's the the rural areas. And that leads to the sort of the general uh, discussion of two Obamacare's, you know, one being a relatively thriving one uh, or where there's many choices and then another Obamacare for a lot of rural areas that seems a lot more straightened. Um, I'm, I'd love for us to get a chance to talk more about that, but I think right now, um, given time pressures, you mentioned, JB, the innovation of Medicare. And I'd love for the listeners to hear your perspective on uh, either MACRA or some of the ongoing efforts by Andy Slavitt and CMS to essentially really fundamentally reshape um, how uh, doctors are going to be paid over the next decade or so. Well, it's interesting because we've got a, a, a dichotomy to some extent. And my experience in policy, in the policy world, a lot of people I deal with there seem to think that they can fine-tune the system with individual incentives. So I, I do a, a mechanism to try to keep, uh, try to deal with this particular aspect, and I expect it to work just around that and ignore all the overhead, um, all the other things that happen out there. The um, the outlier payments for Medicare payment for hospitals. I always thought that was my favorite because uh, the people in Washington think that when somebody stays more than X number of days or spends more than X, then you'd basically do a stop loss insurance payment for them to help uh, encourage people not to discharge people early from the hospital. That's sort of the implicit idea. When I talk to CFOs and people in hospitals, they don't see that at all. They just see an extra check coming in. It's part of the whole payment. It doesn't change anything about what they're doing. So what you have to do is look at the whole. And what we've done in, in a very interesting way is we've done both of those. We've we've done some individual things thinking we're going to tweak individual parts and get people to do things that we want them to do. And then we've created, particularly through the Innovation Center, we've created these overriding uh, mechanisms like ACOs, uh, accountable care organizations, to, to create uh, the, the incentive for people to look beyond the one place in the system. System, particularly the hospital, and look at what happens after their discharge or their return to the hospital, uh, working with partners, all sorts of other things. What you find, interestingly enough, is that incentive gets people to first start dealing with the individual item. So if you, for instance, you look at pneumococcal vaccination after after uh, uh, somebody shows up over 65 in, in a hospital setting, they do not leave the hospital until they have a, a pneumonia vaccine. Well, it turns out to begin with, the best hospitals were maybe at 30, 40 percent compliance. They were terrible. You know, nobody even close. 
Well, they decided that they would go back and, and have SWAT teams to basically tackle people on the way out of the hospital and make sure they don't get away because they were getting penalized for that. Uh, they sort of missed the idea. It's preventive care. That's what you really want to do. Uh, same thing with the readmissions. So you do something with the readmissions, sort of ignoring the fact that um, that what I really want to do is, is create sort of a seamless pattern of care. So we have people that initially go after the, the measure that they're being hammered with. And then over time, I think by and large, they're able to think more broadly about the system question and to say, you know, that's really, we can't handle that just by beating up on the nursing home. Maybe we better create a partnership with a nursing home to actually do stuff to keep them healthy once they're there rather than, now the trouble is there's not money for that. So that's where the uh, things like ACOs and integrating with uh, insurance plans and think people that where the money is, can we get the money lined up with the final incentive of what we're going to do for the patients crossing those boundaries? That takes time. But what we've done is created incentives for people to look at those broader issues, first with the narrow and then with the broader ones. And so I think that's the broader goal of design that we're dealing with here. Uh, interestingly, I think the Innovation Center and Medicare has been doing a pretty good job with most of those. Um, not perfect. I think there are many things they're doing that will rebound to access issues and a variety of other problems. But by and large, they've done a really good job getting those things broad, those big picture items out there. It's when you get to the small picture, this is the variable I'm going to use to measure whether you're doing the right thing or not, and I'm going to pay you for that. That's where you get in trouble. I was reading a piece on NPR this week about the new um, case Cleveland Clinic Med School uh, that's being uh, built in your in your backyard there, JB. And the, the emphasis on teamwork and sort of rethinking the structures there that uh, healthcare professionals will be sort of taught to think more about being in teams and uh, try and deal with some of the, the fragmentation, lack of coordination issues that we're all familiar with. Do you think there's a, a deeper lesson here and more of a revolution rather than sort of a tweaking that's required? I think we've seen a long-term movement towards that. And, and your profession is not very helpful in this respect, I might add, <laughs> because we still have we still have the notion that... We're, we're trying, we're trying. I, well, you're slow, but you know, malpractice is one doctor and one patient, you know, we got still have some questions about that. My time in the Joint Commission Board, I got a real education about what happens, and it's the sort of the Swiss cheese model. A lot of things have to fail for something really bad to happen with patient safety. You know, and you know, the people speak up in the OR. You mark the site, all the stuff that we know we're supposed to do. It's a tall Gawande's uh, checklist manifesto. All those sorts of things have to be there. It's a team. <laughs> well, I think in some places we do a good job with the team, and other places. We we don't, and a lot of it is cultural. Um, one of my, one of the best things I thought, uh, the Center for Transforming Healthcare, one of the three divisions of the Joint Commission, uh, had a cultural uh, assessment that we did with all the North or the South Carolina hospitals that is now available for anybody who is accredited which I thought was brilliant to say it's starting from the board to the top management to the main to the frontline people to the people in the trenches everyone has to be culturally aligned to that system of of culture of safety uh Robert Wood Johnson's now pushing this big time you know culture of safety i think we're onto something there um Unfortunately, the payment systems can't pay you for culture. <laughs> so how do I translate what I really need to do 
by getting all these people lined up to march the same direction and, and cooperate as a team with the payment system. So I think what we're going to find is that people will find out how to do this better. It's a, sort of a grand social scientific experiment. They'll find out how to do it better, and, and, and then they'll find out where the system doesn't pay you or, in fact, maybe inhibit you from doing what you know is the right thing to do. And then we have to go back around the cycle again and change the payment system, probably making it broader, more global rather than more narrow and individual uh, outcome-oriented individual measurement, or, uh, which, which is sort of the way to get people moving, but isn't the way to really run the system. I really want people to think of the big picture, not each individual element, but I want them to think about each individual element in relationship to that broader goal. And that's the tricky part. And that's why it ultimately has to become management and organizational behavior and, and the broader aspects of what we try to do with these organizations. Well, I'm so glad you brought up management and organizational behavior because that's where I actually wanted to uh, close our conversation today, which is, you know, we've been seeing in some of the commentary on the complexity of MACRA and expectations about, you know, use of electronic health records, um, other best practices, etc. Some of the folks that are behind, say, small practices, solo practices, say, look, essentially the bottom line of these changed uh, payment methods and innovation methods is to spark consolidation, that the little guy can't make it on her or his own anymore. And I'm wondering, I mean, is that your general sense that we are moving toward, say, a more corporate model of healthcare, where rather than having this kind of fragmented system and, you know, the kind of policy concerns that are behind, say, the anti-kickback laws, where we're trying to keep everybody at arm's length and independent, is that sort of the ultimate goal overarching, say, Slavitz, CMS, and the ideas behind the ACA in general, that we need vertical integration, consolidation, and that by bringing a more corporate model to healthcare, uh, that's ultimately what's going to be uh, sort of save the system? Well, that's actually a very good question. I, you know, I doubt people that in, infer um, that there's some grand conspiracy going on about almost anything or usually haven't tried it or they <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't believe it. So I find it hard to believe that there's any super intelligence that's behind all this that's pushing us that direction. But Implicitly, that's exactly what they're doing. The macro is a is a shot across the bow of any independent operator in uh, in the clinical setting. It says basically, you got to get together. Now the question then is, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm all part of the of the Borg? You know, I'm all one part of one big entity, and somebody at the top is telling me what to do. If you've worked around a, a clinical system, you know that's pretty hard to pull off. Uh, it doesn't work very well. But if you're trying to get feedback mechanisms and other ways of giving people cues and giving them the, the, the tools to be able to do that and maybe get rid of bad players when that's called for uh, and on down the line, maybe that's that's not a bad thing to do. And maybe the only way to do that is through a corporate uh, system of some sort. The thing I worry about, and this is from looking at lots of businesses because I teach corporate finance too, um, over the years are diseconomies of scale, uh, particularly around professional organizations where you are paying somebody for their expertise that you hope is being applied on, a, on an individual basis as well as a population basis. Um, it is not at all when, – when I see the large entities, and I won't note any of them, but we all know who they are, 
that have become uh, many, many multi-billion dollar corporations. I'm on the board of our local uh, safety net hospital or Metro Health Medical Center. It's a billion dollar corporation. (laughs) Uh, We've got several other in town that are multi-billion dollar corporations. If you look at the back office that's necessary to keep those places going, it is huge. There's just enormous kind of, of overhead that we have to build into these things to make them work. Now, on the other hand, they, they're able to organize themselves to get a lot of good things done that a smaller ent- entity can't. Uh, but basically, those smaller entities are going to go away, as they have been for years. When we did the DRG system for hospitals, we basically set this in motion by saying, you can't have a portfolio that's too small because you can't bear the risks of a few really bad cases. So the small independent hospital basically had to get consolidated. And that wasn't too bad an idea because they weren't doing a very good job. And we're now continuing that trend so that you become even the middle middle sized hospitals have to be part of the larger entity. And now we're going to do it with group practices. They've got to become part of the entity for financial reasons, okay? Because they can't bear that risk. They can't bear the overhead. Is that going to be the right thing for the patients? I don't know. I think ultimately we can have something that's too big. And we have the AT&T problem where uh, we decide at some point we really don't want a monolith and maybe we want to break them up. And probably the key place, and this may be part of what we're seeing with the ACA, is those big entities now have market power that, frankly, is greater than the insurance company. Um, and they get to dictate the terms. And and that really isn't what we want. You know, we really don't want them to dictate the terms. Uh, so Medicare, now in this world, becomes the arbiter of the fair price <laughs> instead of the market. And I think it's very hard to predict right now what's going to happen. But clearly, you're on a path towards consolidation. And I think, by and large, that's okay. Is it perfect? Is it great? I think it has some dangers that we have to be aware of as well. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Dr. Dr. Silvers. JB, some really stimulating thoughts there. Many, many thanks. Oh, I've got 40 more minutes. Come on. Uh, if only. Well, if only. We would, Darn. We, would, we would love to have you back. <laughs> okay, great. Good to be here. We post our show notes at tour.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.